0: In my life, I've never really taken like big action because, you know, with inferiority complex, I thought uh, what I can do is to take small action, take it consistently because big success is the result of taking small action consistently.
1: Dubbed as the man with the most careers, Eric Sim is a former managing director at UBS Investment Bank, turned lecturer, trainer, coach published author, and a key opinion leader with over 2 million followers on LinkedIn. Eric's book, Small Actions, Leading Your Career to Big Success, was even nominated for the Business Book Awards in London in 2022.
2: But how did a young boy from a low-income household who failed English at school and who grew up thinking he'll take over his father's prawn noodle store achieve all of these successes? Well, spoiler alert, it's all in the small actions that Eric took. Stay tuned to hear about how Eric navigated the twists and turns in his career, created a diverse portfolio career, and unleashed the power of small actions to achieve big successes. Enjoy! Hi, this is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your host for Explore
1: This, a podcast for the modern-day working professional.
2: Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally.
1: Hi Eric, I first came across your work back in March 2022 from a LinkedIn learning session and I recall feeling super impressed and reached out to you immediately via LinkedIn DMs after the session and I'm so glad we got to make this conversation happen today. Welcome to the Explore This Podcast, Eric.
0: Thanks for having me. It's been uh, two years since we first connected, yeah.
1: Yes, two years in the making, right? So to start off, Eric, you have had an incredibly successful banking career and you are now a lecturer, trainer, coach, published author and a key opinion leader with over 2 million followers on LinkedIn. So the question I have for you is, Eric, why do you have so many different careers?
0: When I was young, I suffered from inferiority complex so in order to overcome that inferiority complex, I feel like I need to, to keep learning. And the best way to learn is to do somebody's uh, job. In fact, I was thinking, if, is it possible to live somebody else's life? You know, sometimes you watch a movie, somebody is uh, gone into another person's body and start living that person's life. I always wanted to do that but that since that is not possible i think the next best way is to really do different jobs like just up from just now what you described on top of that i have also done a bartending job when i was a student and now i'm also a gardener
2: you
1: spoke about the fact that you were a bartender before and that, you know, wasn't something that we mentioned in, in that list. So I'm a bit intrigued about that. Can you tell us a bit more about that chapter of your life and what it is that you learned and took away from that bartending stint that you had?
0: It was the third year of university. I was doing my engineering degree and my father stopped selling prawn noodle, So I don't need to help him during school holiday. And so then I say, okay, what can I do? Since I was helping him, in the prawn noodle store, I know maybe I can look for a job in uh, FMB. So I say, okay, why not try a bartending job? I applied, I got in, and now suddenly I'm working in the night until 3, 4 a.m. I've never done this before. And I also don't really know how to make drinks. I know what the drinks are, so I memorized the recipe. Come Monday, it was okay, I can handle the crowd. Tuesday, not too bad. Wednesday is ladies' night in Singapore. I don't know about Malaysia. You have ladies' night? We do. It was super crowded. I just couldn't handle it. I was in the island bar. The bar is in the middle. And the the customers coming uh, all around and pushing this drinks coupon into my face, ordering all sorts of drinks. Grasshopper, Rainbow. Rainbow is very difficult to make. It's seven layers of alcohol. Then if it's beer, I need to ask what beer it is. And I couldn't cope then so the band started playing the crowd went to listen to the band and feeling disappointed so I then wanted to uh, make it faster so I memorized the recipe come Thursday it it didn't get better it was worse right Friday the crowd is like four four layers of people in front of me and I suddenly freeze and I asked the crowd I'm going to make bourbon coke now who wants bourbon coke Half the people change their order to Bourbon Coke, including the person ordering Rainbow, the person ordering Grasshopper. So then I standardize the order and I can uh, make the drink faster. The manager is happy because I make more sales. Customer is happy because they get their drinks faster. I'm happy because I finally find that I'm, I can do my job without experience. And that was the story I told the hiring manager at DBS Bank. And she gave me a job and that's how I started my banking career.
2: Well, Eric, that certainly was evident of your ability to not only think on your feet, but be creative around how you can respond to the needs and the wants of a very thirsty Wednesday crowd.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All these holiday jobs, all this side hustle, you think that is very minor. But number one, uh, test you. Number two, show what kind of person you are. So the, the lesson that I learned is sometimes customers do not know what they want. And you don't always have to give customer what they ask for.
2: As long as you can still make them happy in a different way. Yes. Well, you speak very openly, Eric, about your very humble beginnings and mm. how you grew up in a low-income family as the son of a prawn noodle shop owner. What was it like when you were growing up? And in what ways did your childhood shape you to become the person that you are today?
0: So I was helping my father who sold prawn noodle for 30 years. I helped him uh, for 10 years, starting from primary school to university second year. I was uh, washing bowls, cooking, slicing prawn, slicing chili. And I was a skinny boy, seriously underweight. When I was like 15, 16, I still look like 12 years old. So my father always wanted to make me more man, you know, like a grown-up uh, teenager, not, not like a little kid. So he would offer me uh, beer. I was like 16 years old. I'm not even of the legal age. He said, hey, try, try some. Uh, sometimes in front of relatives, and you not. Know? And when I was like 20 after army, then he, still, he also offered me cigarettes. Very fortunately, I never picked up any of this habit. So that's the kind of upbringing that I, I have. And I, I will mix with other hawker, you know, the person that sells fishbowl noodle, the the provision shop. I was helping my auntie to sell durians during school holiday as well in June and December. Then my mother, she she manages the finances and we were so poor, we we live in a two-bedroom HDB, which is Singapore government housing. Because we needed more cash, she rented one room out. We already have five People in my family two younger sister and both my parents right and me and then we only got two bedrooms and then she still rented one one room out she rented to a female singer in in her like late 20s 30s very beautiful lady and i was a teenager and this this girl would after shower she'll wrap herself in a towel and then go to her her bedroom then after she left us after after staying with us for about eight to ten years so i asked my mother hey, this auntie, she's a singer, but I never hear her practice or rehearse her, her songs. And she told me that she's not a singer. She's a KTV hostess. So again, I think my mother also have the same thinking. Good or bad, you need to both experience. So instead of me going out, so she's bringing the, the bad influence uh into, into the house to see whether I can resist temptation or i can differentiate the good good or bad people but with this type of upbringing so i see all sorts of people and there's no really good or bad you know people are people they they all make their choices and there's always a good side to a person you think is bad and there's always a bad side to a person who you think is good so because of that i think i can mix with all different type of people
1: Given that realities that you grew up in, Eric, humble beginnings and then also um, mixed with, you know, very complex type of people in society, what yeah. was the reality, uh, you know, when you think about your future back in that, those days when you, were, you you described small, skinny, what yeah. do you envision that future for you to look like?
0: There's no vision. I mean, with, with that type of situation where you got no resources and you don't even know the outside world, the, the person that I know is my father's helper. He's a few years older than me. And he sold me a bicycle. So only at age 15 I learned how to cycle. Later I found out that he stole the bicycle. And then sell it to me. Yeah, it's um it's difficult to, to imagine. When people have a, a vision, right, what the future is, when you got family members who paint you the path. You can choose to go this path or that path. For my case, There's no path. I think the only thing that is clear is I can take over my father's prawn noodle store one day if I want to. But my mother feel that that is uh, too much of a hard work. uh, There's no rest. My father only rested one day a year. And yeah, there's no thinking of the future.
2: Well, I would say, Eric, that your very humble beginnings of the story with your family and how you grew up, it reminded me of this quote I came across recently, which is, don't forget where you came from, but don't let it solely define you. And you certainly lived up to that, whereby you have charted a very unconventional career with so many twists and turns, which we'll dive into a little bit more later. And one of the things I caught on that you mentioned as well is that you grew up as a very scrawny, socially awkward kid that suffered from... Serious inferiority complex during your childhood days. What was that aha moment for you when you realized that, you know, I need to do something about it so I don't end up becoming a socially awkward adult? Yeah. How did you overcome it?
0: I failed so many subjects in school, in secondary school. Then I decided just to focus on one subject, forget about the rest. I just focused on mathematics and I continued to fail my English and, and literature. And when I was in secondary three, uh, the year-end exam, I managed to score the highest in class for, for my mathematics. Then suddenly things change. People who view me as invisible and now suddenly uh, talk to me and girls start coming to me to ask how to solve mathematics problem. So that helped me think that maybe if I get better, then I have more value to others and then they can come to me. And if they come to me, I don't need to be so socially skilled because now now they need me. So after that, I then focus on other subjects and I try to learn as many different things as possible. I have got a folder at home, which is in in my closet, this thick, full of certificates. So I have taken uh, art history as an engineering student. I have learned the Japanese language. I even passed JLPT4, Japanese Language Proficiency Test. And during uh, the pandemic, I got a diploma in positive psychology. So all of this is from the aha moment that actually by learning, I get to become socially acceptable.
1: This is something that you wrote about quite a lot as well, right? On how you have took a chance to even study photography, even things that are unrelated to the specific chapter of the life that you were in Mm. and one thing you've written about a lot and is that you're very open about the twists and turns that you've been experiencing in your career journey very non-linear career trajectory so Mm. before embarking on a career in banking um, you actually got rejected when you applied for a cabin crew job and even after you graduated with your master's in finance that was when the asian financial crisis hit and uh, you eventually even went on to apply for a phd but you got rejected
0: yeah, got rejected and, by Princeton.
1: <laughs> yes. And I think to be very real here, um, rejection hurts. And I'm sure it, it really stung when those rejections slapped you in the face like that. But you know, when you were going through these different seasons with the doors mm. closing on you, we were curious to know the mindset or the guiding principles that you held on to as you navigated these unexpected twists and turns in your career.
0: I think the mindset and guiding principle that I've found after failing so many times is Failure sometimes is like medicine. It is bitter, but can be good for you. Number one, it gives you story to tell right after afterwards. Number two, sometimes it is not rejection, but uh, redirection, some form of feedback to say that you're not suitable. Try something else. Failure, I find that is also not fatal. Often I I fail, then I leverage on that failure. And from there, I can do something even bigger. And this makes life uh, more interesting. Number three is try to be adaptable. You know, I'm a gardener. So I study plants and I realize plants are very adaptable and they can even grow it from a cracks on the road. Sometimes you have seen some plants growing from there. Nobody taking care of it, but it, it can it can survive. So I try to be ad- adaptable. It means when I fail, one thing is um, I, I'm not fixated. I will go around it. I change my plan. That's how I survive you know that's the mindset and the guiding principle that i have and also because i fail so many times i get used to not succeeding so whenever i try new things i'm mentally prepared that i will fail but after failing usually i allow myself one to two days to get disappointed but uh, after that then you know i'll sit down and say okay what can i do next for example, just now I mentioned uh, about the Asian financial crisis. I couldn't find a, a front office job uh, later on, so I changed to a, a risk management job, a middle office job. I said, now, instead of finding my ideal job, let me find a good boss. Then I found a really good boss uh, in Standard Chartered Bank. His name is uh, Prasanna Tombury and he really uh, helped me build my confidence. And I think from there, I was able to uh, develop more international career because he starts sending me to London and Hong Kong.
1: I think it's great on how you've reframed failure to be redirection rather than, you know, the dead end or, or rather the end. But diving deeper into that, what would you say would be the biggest or the most defining failure that you've been through? And what were some of the lessons that you took away from that particular failure?
0: Too many, but I'll just mention a, a bit more a more recent one. 2017, so I left banking. I left UBS, so I thought, okay, let me set up a training company called Institute of Life. I said, okay, let me set a, a simple target. I'll teach two days all the skills that I know, the key skills for, for success that I have climbed, you know, all the way to UBS MD, right? So there must be a lot of people who wants to learn that, how to climb up to be a partner of a law firm or MD of consulting or investment banking. So my target was to have 20 people. Come, each one paying five hundred US, so that's ten thousand US, right? Small target, I think anyone will pay. So I give myself two weeks to market the course. At the end, only five people signed up, and I had to cancel the course. So it was uh, a big failure because I, I I thought it would be easy. A uh, few things that I learned. Number one is I was known as a banker, so suddenly when I became a trainer, people need time to to know the new me. And also there were like friends saying, no no problem when you have this course, we will send a few people. But when it comes to that time, (laughs) some got no budget, some the timing is not right, which, which is true because then I had to decide whether to do weekend or weekday course. Weekday course, I attract people who are sponsored. Weekend course, I will attract people who pay on their own. So whichever I do, I will not be able to get the full crowd. I only get part of it. That I didn't take into consideration. And also, when it comes to parting money, uh, it takes a lot more than my own story or my own brand. It takes word of mouth uh, because if it's your first course, people do not know whether you can teach. They know that you're a good banker, but whether you can train them. So you need to do a few rounds so that their are friends, recommend them to come. So you need to sit in for, for, the, for the long run. So a lot of things that are challenging usually, you won't be so good at it the first time. So this is what I learned. And also give yourself some time, cut yourself some slack.
2: It, it has been a couple of years since then, but evidently, you know, you have overcome that mountain because Institute of Life is obviously very successful now with so many different workshops, coaching panels and stuff like that that you do via Institute of Life. And we'll dive into that a little bit more. You spoke very briefly on your successful career in banking when you started corporate sales at DBS. Moving on to risk manager at standard chartered director at Citi and finally as a managing director at UBS investment bank. Mm. Despite being an engineer by training and knowing nothing but about finance, later on, few, every few years you moved between the different banks mm. and with many of these roles being offered to you and each role being a step up one from the other. So reflecting on your career now, what do you think were some of the right moves that you have made to attract some of these opportunities which some might argue that you know it landed on your plate or it might have been given to you on a silver platter?
0: So I was very fortunate. A lot of jobs came, just my friends calling, for example, uh, the UBS MD job. My friend Paul who was colleague with me at City. So call me up, say, hey, uh, we got a role, my boss is looking for somebody like you, Eric. So I say, yeah, l- let me g- give it a try. I went for nine rounds of interview, I got a job. But you just now you're asking me, you know, what are the right moves? I don't know whether to call that the right move, but I I did three things. Number one is accumulate social capital. So social capital is the goodwill you have with people. You help them out, you buy lunch, you know, when you close a deal, you give them credit. You treat people with respect. So there's social capital. Number two is to develop um, a signature skill. So signature skill is a skill that can attract people to you. So I was using a Mac computer. It was around 2001, 2002. At that time, nobody uses Mac because they're not compatible, especially in banking. But somehow, after I use it, after I tell people and then they start asking me. So I, with that, I built a good relationship with colleagues and bosses. I was also a photographer. So I was taking photos for clients uh, during clients event. So that helped me build relationship with clients as well. And later on, when I was in City and UBS, I was teaching. And that helped me to attract people to me, attract clients to me as well. And the third thing is to know that great opportunities come at inconvenient time. So like UBS and MD job is superb, right? But it's in Hong Kong. I was then in Singapore. I just came back to Singapore two years before. So I bought my car. I renovated my apartment. I finally settled my kids into a new school after moving from Hong Kong to Singapore. And in less than two years, I need to move back. I I told the UBS boss, hey, I say that this job is an Asia job. I can be based in Singapore, right? I just fly to Hong Kong every other week. He, He said no. You must be based in Hong Kong or else, you know, I don't take this job. So I sold my car, <laughs> rented my apartment, find new school for my kids again. Then I went. These are the three things that I do regularly. Accumulate social capital, develop signature skills and know that usually when opportunity comes, it will not be presented to you in a beautiful, convenient package. Some part of it, you have to make compromise.
1: I think these are really thought-provoking tips that you are sharing, especially I think a lot of our listeners out there who are thinking about how they can move forward in their careers, they will also be wondering, how can they find ways to be recognized as well for what it is that they do well? And Mm. I've heard you mention somewhere as well, where you shared a story about how even as a young banker, you actually was daring enough to write an article that was well beyond your maturity. And in fact, your senior management actually called you up when they found out that you wrote an article and you're yes. so scared that you would get fired, right? It's it's yeah. that gut to be bold enough to write that. What gave you the courage to do such a thing as, as a very young, you know, professional? Okay. That- Two
0: things. One is I have a very good boss, Prasanna. That time I was in Standard Chartered Bank. I know he will back me up. I also put his name as a co-author, although I am the one who wrote the paper. So if die, die together. <laughs> <laughs> So that's number one. Number two is I always like to try new things and push boundary. Like it's ridiculous, right? To apply for Princeton PhD and who am I? But I, I don't care. I just, I just went to try. And writing this paper, I have the knowledge that magazine at that time was a very popular one. It's called Derivative Weekly. We subscribed. So I was reading it. Then I was seeing people writing. I said, wouldn't it be nice if one day the article that I read the, the author is my name. Then I said, Ah, try lah. He just uh, wrote and submit. Literally, I know they published it. And the big boss saw it because the big boss then saw the person who wrote it is from That They don't know who this guy is, this is Eric Sim. They said, Let me find out. So the big boss asked the, the next big boss, who's also very senior, Southeast Asia head, to come and uh, look for Eric Sim and then going around and say, Who's Eric Sim? Where's Eric Sim? And I said, Okay, uh, it's me. <laughs> then, pulling me into the big boss office 10 people holding my paper reading and ask me yeah eric same i say yeah you wrote this paper i say yeah you wrote it personally yeah i I wrote it personally you know what you're writing yeah i know what i'm writing okay hr give him five thousand (laughs) dollars so they give me yeah five thousand dollars as as an award yeah, to to take the initiative. I was thinking I'm going to get fired because I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody that I'm going to publish an article. And normally, you need to inform public communication, right?
1: Uh, I suppose with high risk comes high rewards and you were someone who at the time thought, you know what, I'm going to take a leap of faith and, and just do it and hope for the best. And in this case, I think it was great that your senior management were, were truly supportive and the fact that you had a great boss who would back you up that as well as something that I think contributed to the recipe of your success. But even though you had, you know, all these bold moves, some might be surprised to find out that even up to your early 30s, during your banking days, you have talked mm. about how you still suffered from stage fright. Mm. But yeah. mm, you, um. you had stage fright. Yeah, That's that might be surprising to some, but you could still deliver training sessions at your bank and even go on to deliver a few TEDx talks. So how did this huge leap happen from stage fright and nervousness to then TEDx speaker? Yeah,
0: it took me 20 years. <laughs> wow, tell us more. <laughs> so um, I tend to take small action. I'm not a very courageous person. And in banking, I attend a lot of big conferences, big events uh, at hotel ballrooms. So when the conference is Ending when the last speaker spoke and people are just getting out of the conference room or the the big ballroom, I will walk to the stage, pretending to look for the clicker for the last speaker. But actually, what I'm doing is I'm trying to visualize if I'm the speaker and below is this huge audience, how it it would feel. And then also, how, how is it like standing on stage because there's a lot of bright lights. Shining into your eyes. So I do that maybe five to six times. So I got a bit better. I can speak to a small crowd. I can teach in the university, like 20, 30 students. Then came an invitation to do a TEDx talk. Then I was very hesitant. I said, TEDx talk, 400 people, three, four cameras looking at you. I don't think I can do that. Then the organizer said that the fact that we invited you, Eric, to do this TEDx talk, it means you have a story to tell. Just tell your story. So that gave me the confidence. So I went on to tell my story. So I titled my TEDx talk called 10 Years of Selling Noodles. Really uh, what I learned at the noodle store and the skills that are applicable in in investment banking. So it worked, uh, the audience liked it. And later on, I realized is not your public speaking skills. It is whether you have a story that is worth sharing. That's the most important.
2: In fact, Eric, as you speak about this, it just reminds me about all the different um, LinkedIn articles that we've read that you've published as well as in your books, right, that has made up the 66 bite-sized stories that was eventually published into your book, which we'll get into later. But on that note of the TEDx talk where you spoke about the lessons learned from selling noodles, you know, That was, in fact, the starting point of your journey building your portfolio career. And in fact, a portfolio career is something that we've also spoken about on our podcast Mm -hmm. on episode 27 Mm -hmm. with another guest. Her name was April Renee on the title, A Flux Mindset and Why You Should Build a Career Portfolio. And this is Mm -hmm. something that very much resonated with us when we read about how you elaborated more about the different varied skills that you have accumulated over time, which played a critical role in developing your career to where it is today and for yourself you built skills that have um, started your journey from finance banking academia training speaking i'm sure the bits and bobs on bartending as well as gardening has helped accumulate and shaped you to where you are today as well. So if we were to ask you, Eric, what are some strategies that individuals, early, mid-career, young professionals like Janice and myself can explore to help us with developing such a successful career portfolio? What would be your word of advice for us?
0: Number one is to incorporate your interest into your day job. Because a lot of people, they either do not know what, what's their interest or the kind of side hustle that they can do or they don't have ways to develop those uh, interests. So I would say test it out on your colleagues. For example, if you like to sing, then you know if there's a talent show, sing during the talent show. If you want to be a trainer, train uh, internally first. If you're a sports person, right? Organize a 3K run for your colleagues and then see see whether you can get things going. So that's one. Number two is try to do it for free for a while to access if there is a demand for your service. If it's free and nobody demands it, then it means maybe it's not going to be a good side hustle or, or career. That after you find that there is demand, try to make your first dollar before you quit your job. Because when you give it to people for free, or or you even charge. Few dollars is huge difference because when it's free, many people want, right? right? When they need to pay, then they will start thinking. So if you are charging even a token sum and people want it still, they it means you you have something going. Then um, hopefully you develop your portfolio career or second career which has no conflict with your day job. That means you can do it openly. You don't need to hide it from your boss then you have chance to develop over a period of time and it can eventually become one of the career in your portfolio
1: we spoke about your portfolio careers and you've given us some really tangible tools on how people can go on to explore developing their own portfolio career. Mm. But I think a crucial question that we'd love to hear you answer is kind of the why behind it. For example, uh, someone in a career in banking, mm. um, very happy to just go on their day-to-day job, moving upwards in life uh, and mm. in their jobs. What is the case for them to think about potentially exploring developing this portfolio career?
0: Yeah, so number one is a person usually have multiple skill set and multiple talent. So one job, right, cannot make full use of all your talent. So if you do only one job, it's a bit a, a waste. Number two, we want a few things in life. We want money. We also want meaning. We also want health and happiness. But often, right, one job cannot give you all these four elements. Banking job maybe give you money but may not give you happiness. It may not feel very meaningful in your job. Maybe you do social work very meaningful, but may not pay you. So a portfolio career is to get one or two elements from each job. And then with three or four jobs, then you get money, meaning, health, and happiness. It's also very unfair to the employer to expect them to give these four elements in our job, you know, from, from one employer. They really pay you the money you still expect them to make you happy it's not written in the contract i mean you guys are, are lawyers you know in the employment contract only say how many hours you work and what's your job responsibility they don't mention oh we'll give you meaning we'll give you happiness you'll take care of your health no not, nothing of that so so we have to find in our own way and for me Teaching give me some meaning because I can create impact. Speaking give me some happiness when I go on stage and then I realize that all oh, people are willing to come and listen to me. So that gives me happiness. And health is I got the freedom to go to the gym, to do my training and yoga, both mental health as well as physical health. And previously when I was in banking, you know, I
1: get a decent amount of money. I think you've made a very persuasive case for sure, on why, you know, we should all start really thinking about having a second career or developing our portfolio career. And on that note, Eric, one of the careers within your portfolio career is an author. And I want to next talk about your book, Small Actions, which I am holding in my hands right now. This very striking orange book that I kind of rushed out to get after listening to your LinkedIn learning session. Oh, Uh, thanks. Yeah, it's called Small Actions, Leading Your Career to Big success and i got it in hong kong from Bookazine, and we'd love to hear from you a bit more about this book and you know your journey so far as, as being an author what mm. inspired you to write this book and and why do you name it small actions
0: yeah so some of my followers on linkedin say they want to read my old articles but it's very difficult to find old articles on linkedin is you almost cannot search For example, if you read one article and then two months later, you say, I want to go and read back the article. You need to go through my my past articles, right? And sometimes you may miss it. There's no title and then you may not remember the image. So I thought if I write the book, I put my best article, the most useful one and organize it in a structured manner, maybe uh, useful to my followers. So that's the key reason why I uh, wrote this. And also it's not... Too difficult because the book that you hold now, 50% are from my LinkedIn articles. So it's already written. I just need to tidy it up. And I got co-author, Simon Moloch, who's fantastic. You know, he, he knows how to do that very well. And he helped me to beautify and make it presentable. And why I name it Small Action is because in my life, I've never really taken like big action because with inferiority complex, I thought, uh, what I can do is to take small action, take it consistently because big success is the result of taking small action consistently. And if you read my book, you hear my talk or teaching is always small little thing, right? For example, time management, I just wear white shirt, blue suit all the time. I save time. So it's as simple as that. I want to overcome stage fright. I just go on the stage. Just keep standing on the stage to overcome stage fright. And to write a book, I read one LinkedIn article each week. Over one year, I would have 52 articles. I just need to write another 10 to 15 more. I got a book of 66 chapters.
1: And I have to say that, you know, each of the chapters, they read in a way that's very... You write in a language that's very simple and very digestible (laughs) to the reader. And one particular chapter that stood out to me was uh, chapter four, mm. where you spoke about being the CEO of your life. And and I'm going to quote um, something that you said, right? You yeah. you said, your job takes on a different meaning when you adopt the perspective of a CEO. You get a greater sense of autonomy, which makes your work more meaningful and fulfilling. So what actionable step would you say is something that we can take today to mm. start being the CEO of our lives?
0: So. I don't see myself as an employee. I'm the CEO of Eric Sim Consulting Company. So I'm offering my time and services through this consulting company to the banks I work for, say to uh, Citi or UBS. That's the way I, I see. So instead of seeing my salary as salary, it's actually a consulting fee that I'm receiving. So if I have this mindset, then... I'll be willing to train myself for the skills that I lack. For example, I buy my own chair. I don't like the office chair. I I don't complain. I just buy my own chair. And my chair is being shipped from Singapore to Shanghai (laughs) to UBS. Different different countries and also different uh, banks. Sometimes even the biggest bank, they don't give you quality stationery. I buy my own stationery. Because all these small little things can make your work better. if you're if you're a consultant, this is what you will think. If your employees oh, the company doesn't pay for this,' I'm, I'm not going. I'm not buying. I'm not using my own money. then you you will suffer. So when I was with a standard Chartered bank as a risk manager, one day my insurance agent came to me to say he's attending a course for insurance agent to deal with rejection. So to deal with rejection. But he said that after this five-day course, you will be able to face rejection very well. I said, that's the course that I need because I face too many rejection. And also, insurance agent needs to know how to sell. I said, I better pick up some selling skills. But this course, right? Number one is for insurance agent. Number two, it's got nothing to do with my risk management job. If I go and ask my boss, I will put him in a difficult spot because he knows that, or I know that the company policy will not allow this to be approved. So at the end I took 5 days of annual leave went to JB to take the course and I paid for it myself as well and that course helped me become better socially because you know now I'm the only non insurance agent in that whole course I learned from them how to sell I learned how to take rejection and that helped me move to city after a few years so in 2001 I moved to city and I went back to front office to do if sales. So this is what I call be your own CEO because your boss is going to look at you. They will train you to be useful in the next three months and for that job only. But our life, our career is so long, right? 20, 30 years of career. So now what I do could be for my next job, not in this company. For example, I do a lot of internal training when I was in banking. And that training internally helps me to become associate professor in the university.
2: But I wonder, Eric, did you always have this approach of being the CEO of your own life? Or was it only towards the later part of your career where, on hindsight, you saw how the accumulation of all these skills could contribute to, you know, your development and your career acceleration?
0: I think I was already doing it early part in my career, paying for my own training, I did it when I, in 1998, that means I worked for four years. So I was still considered early career. Of course, at that time, I didn't have this concept of being your own CEO. It's just that, hey, I, I need this skill. I, I'll just go for it. Even my company doesn't pay. If it's good for me, I, I, I do it. And at the later part of my career is where I spend money. So I would spend money to treat colleagues. If I go to London for a holiday, I will go to uh, my bank's office. To, to say hi to those colleagues, to show my face, to build that relationship. Because those, uh, although you use your own time and uh, own money to to go there, but if you just pop into your, your company's overseas branches for a couple of hours, it will help you in your career later on, right? And also the money that you can get back if you get a promotion or you change your job with a good increment, then it pays you multiple times.
2: One thing that's evident to me, Eric, is that you're very far-sighted and you're someone who has bias to action. So I'm sure that's a lot of gems and insights that you're sharing through all of these stories to our listeners. And one other thing that stood out to us with all of your LinkedIn posts and also tying to the release and the publication of your book as well, mm-hmm. is really this ability of yours to storytell mm. in a very succinct and compelling manner and leaving your audience with actionable takeaways. Mm. And with your being named LinkedIn Top Voices for Singapore and LinkedIn Spotlight for China with more than 2 million followers. We are curious to know what is that secret sauce behind your thought leadership process? And as you've mentioned, you know, you used to commit to writing one article on LinkedIn every single week, which mm. accumulated up to 52 articles in a year that not only demonstrates consistency and discipline but I'm sure there was an approach or a thought process or a structure that you follow so we'd love to hear a little bit more from you on that
0: so every time I write a post I start with what is the lesson I want to share so if this is the lesson then what's the story about what was the problem is there a happy ending then I went on to tell the story because I'm not very good in English so I try to use pictures And pictures give details. Say, for example, I met a hawker in Maxwell Market in Singapore, a hawker center. He was eating his own chicken rice. You know, a hawker eating his own chicken rice for lunch, a full meal. So I went to ask him, how often do you eat your own food? He said, once a week. I say, why eat so often? Because you just need to taste the food. One mouthful, you know. He said that, He's now not working for himself. He's working for somebody else. He has his own store for 30 years. He closed down his store last year. And now he works for a franchise store. And he has to change his recipe, change his style of cooking to make sure it's consistent with the boss standard. And he's eating once a week to to ensure that quality control. So I thought, wow, this is quite professional. Number one is, to tell me this and then to, to try to cook a different way, right? is to admit that the last 30 years you've been cooking it wrongly. That's why you failed. That's why you have to close down the store. Now you have to change. But he, he wasn't bitter, right? To, to work for somebody else. He still tried to eat and make sure he followed the new boss recipe. So I, I wrote that and then I say that he's professional. Plus there's a picture of his chicken rice uh, store with the chicken hanging and then me. So the picture will tell the story rather than a selfie of myself. That can attract people, but it doesn't give the reader the, the, the details. So my starting point is always how can the reader have the full picture through my words, through the picture, and always right have a lesson that they can take away. And this lesson, I will not tell them exactly I lead them to to reflect. So I give them a framework to think. I give them a clue. And because a lot of my listeners, they are very smart people. They are also experienced people. They have their own way of interpreting the, the stories.
1: From what I'm interpreting, the stories that you share really strike a chord with people because of the fact that it's quite relatable. I Mm. think not many of us can relate to, you know, being promoted and maybe becoming like director of a company, but we can all relate to eating chicken rice or going to the food court. (laughs) Kind of everyday uh, stories, right?
0: So I try to observe my surroundings. So I'll talk to the chef, I'll talk to my tailor. The stories are everywhere around us so we also no need to use the story from our own personal experience can be story of the other people.
1: Mm. And of course, you know, with you being LinkedIn top voices and having been in a world of thought leadership, especially on LinkedIn for a long time, we also Mm. want to explore, you know, the dark side or rather the flip side of LinkedIn and social media as a whole, Mm. where now, you know, this is a saturated world that we see where there are humble bragging or humble flexing sometimes in a way that's quite low key, uh, but also comes across as quite strongly as well. How mm. do you think, you know, people can draw the line when they want to genuinely kind of share about the accomplishment without mm. coming across as humble bragging? Mm. Any advice on that?
0: Number one is your intention. So if you want to brag, no matter how you do it, it will come across as bragging. Uh, but your intention is to share this experience so people can learn. Uh, then it's okay. And number two is the frequency every other post is about your own achievement, then of course, people will get sick of it. But if nine posts is adding value, one post is a bit of advertisement showing you know what you have achieved, then it's okay. And it's human nature. Human wants to share. And I also don't mind if it's once in a while. If this person is giving me so much value once in a while, he wants to tell me he achieved this, it's okay. So I think it's have good intention. I think that's the, the most key and. Eh? This humble bragging is you can brag, but always, right, make sure that after people read, whatever it is it, bragging or not, there is something for them to take. It's not, hello, I'm here, look at me, I'm on stage with so-and-so. That's, uh, that, that doesn't help me. But if you s- say that I'm stay- on stage with so-and-so, this so-and-so, his story is like that, and I learn about his failure and how he overcome. Uh, that is okay.
2: Well, Eric, on that note, we've heard so many interesting stories of your life, and you have taken us from a career when you started out thinking you might, you know, potentially be taking over your father's pro noodle hawker store but later on through all the different twists and turns which has brought you through your career in finance and later on even through your master's and exploring um, teaching as an adjunct professor all these different skills and thought processes that you've Adopted and accumulated in your life has definitely made you who you are today. And you know we're really happy for the opportunity to have connected with you. Mm. I would love to wrap up our episode by asking you a question that we ask all of our explore this guests. Mm. And that question is, what is one thing that you would like to explore more of?
0: For me, is to be a designer. I've always wanted to be a designer and. um I want to be a landscape designer, hopefully in the next five years. And if anybody out there listening, if you are good in design, please share what you know with me.
2: Where did this interest come from? Did it suddenly appear, or has it always been you know a a thought that's at the back of your mind that now an itch that you're now scratching?
0: ah uh, no it's it's been with me for a very long time. After working for 10 years, I actually applied to NUS to take my second degree in architecture. I got admitted, but I didn't have the courage to take, take it on because it's a six-year course and I'm thinking I'm going to give up my banking career and all the salary and bonuses to do six years of study. Then I put on my suit the next day and went to work.
2: <laughs> that is a story we haven't heard yet.
0: Yeah, that one. No, I haven't told it. I'm keeping it for another day.
2: All right, that's a little teaser in case we need to bring you on for round two of this episode then, Eric. So on that note, we'd love to know where can our audience find you?
0: You can find me uh, on LinkedIn. I also, I'm also, i also on Instagram on LinkedIn. My name is Eric Sim on uh, Instagram. My handle is Institute of Life. And if you want to engage with me after listening to this podcast, you can share three key takeaways from this podcast. You can tag me if your post is interesting. If you're adding values to, to readers, then I'll engage with your post and hopefully some of my followers will see your post and I hope that they can follow you. And to, to conclude, I like to give um, a bit of uh, tips is to start small, start now, stay curious
2: wonderful words to end this episode and we will leave our audience with those three gems that you've shared thank you so much eric for your time speaking to us on the explore this podcast this evening
0: thank you Sarah, And thank you janice
2: if you stuck around to the end of this episode we want to say